There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Tuesday morning, the 29th of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. SIPTU's biannual delegate conference is underway in Sligo. SIPTU is the largest trade union in the country with 180,000 members. It represents the equivalent of the populations of Cork and Drogheda combined. The conference will be addressed today by the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins, who will say there never was a more appropriate, more exciting time to be a part of the trade union movement for a future of equality, justice and sustainability, one that will carry the imprint of the trade union's emancipatory imprint. How that will be heard by government is not certain, given how yesterday the Minister for Social Protection, Heather Humphreys was advised not to make the same mistake her predecessor made with SIPTU claiming Regina Doherty lost her Doyle seat for trying to increase the pension age to 67 and if Regina Doherty's mistake is repeated, Fine Gael will be wiped out. Minister, our union is putting you and your party on notice. If you cast aside all of the evidence If you ignore the opposition, if you scorn the public outcry and increase the pension age to 67, you will be signing your party's political death Right, that's the Deputy uh, General Secretary of uh, SIP2, Ethel Buckley, speaking at uh, the conference yesterday. Let's go to Greg Gennis, Manufacturing Division Organiser with uh, SIP2, who addressed the 350 delegates or or so later this morning. Good morning to you, Greg, and thanks uh, indeed uh, for joining us. There's much to talk uh, about, but uh, perhaps uh, we could begin with uh, that last statement from Ethel Buckley. Uh, A threat to Fine Gael to wipe the party out uh, if uh, they continue on this path of increasing the pension age. It's a pretty aggressive approach, is it not? Uh, I think it's the right approach, Michael. Good morning to you and your listeners again. Uh, I, I think it is the right approach. Uh, I, I, I fully subscribe to what Ethel has been saying because this issue has uh, been a hot topic in the last election. Uh, I do believe it caused some people to lose their seats. 
uh, because Siptu, you know, when you mentioned about the population of Cork and, and, and 180,000, we have a significant reach, not just to our membership, but to our members' families uh, by extension. Uh, and, and our members vote, uh, they're politically active, uh, and moving the pension age to 67 and with plans to move it to 68 uh, is never going to be acceptable to Siptu, and we will do everything in our power to ensure uh, that that pension age does not move to 67. Okay, so you've put a marker down there. It seems to be, uh, to some degree, with the support of Michael D. Higgins, uh, who has a, a non-partisan, non-political uh, office. Uh, and uh, it wouldn't seem unusual. Is it unusual? I'm trying to uh, remember if uh, presidents normally address trade union conferences. Um I haven't seen a president address the trade union conference mm. before in my time. Uh, we've had many high-profile speakers over the years. Uh, but I will say that, you know, we, we have a conference here in Sligo that you mentioned. It's, it's, it's extremely well attended. It's, it's the biggest trade union conference in the country. Uh, and, uh, you know, we haven't had a conference for two and a half years because of COVID. Uh, and this conference is debating lots of topics, including pension. Uh, and uh, the president will address conference this morning at half 11. Mm. Uh, but one of the bigger issues that's really reverberating around conference is the whole issue of inflation and, and, and pay. Sure. Of course. Uh, and, yeah. and workers yeah. are really yeah. struggling as they're hosting, Michael, you know. And, and I, I've had a chance to look at uh, the president's uh, speech before he delivers it uh, this morning. Uh, but I think some eyebrows may be raised in political circles, particularly in Fine Gael circles, given Michael D. Higgins' affiliation with the Labour Party and SIFTU by consequence, uh, and uh, the marker that was put down to Fine Gael yesterday from SIFTU's conference and Michael D. Higgins endorsing your trade union and trade union membership for that matter. Yeah, well, Michael D. Higgins is a long-standing member of our trade union uh, uh, along with the other 180,000 people that you referenced earlier. Uh, and, you know, support coming for what's right and fair for workers from wherever it comes is always welcome. Um, I haven't had the benefit of seeing the speech you have, uh, but I will listen intently to what he has to say uh, at 11.30. OK. Well, tell us a, a little bit about what SIPTU is saying, more to the point, because, as you say, inflation is hurting everybody, uh, and SIPTU yeah. will be looking for pay increases in line with inflation. Does anyone even know what that means? Well, DSRI uh, knows what it means in that it, it predicts, uh, unfortunately, that inflation uh, it will hit a high of 8.5% in the coming months before it slightly drops and may average 6.7% this year. Uh, and it's not a temporary blip that people thought late last year that it would be. We, we've seen record highs of inflation of 5.5% in January, and it was the highest in 20 years, Michael, but now it's going to go even higher, and it's obviously compounded by the war in Ukraine, among other things. But I, I will say that, you know, in Ireland we have almost 27% of, of, of the working population are classed as low-paid workers. And if you look at the minimum wage today of 10.50, that will give a worker €21,300 per year. However, the living wage uh, at 12.90, I believe the living wage should become the minimum wage. So I believe that the time for the minimum wage at 10.50, which is not a scientific calculation, that needs to go. The living wage needs to become the minimum wage. The living wage is a scientific calculation. It's accepted by all parties and none that it, you need 12.90 an hour today uh, as an adult in this country to have any sort of chance of, of, of living in what is mm. you know, exorbitant rent, food prices, etc. And, you know, uh, we believe that inflation has been driven by business. Uh, we, we would say that, you know, we're now heading back to what is rip-off Ireland and, and workers out there are really, really hurting. So, you know, as the biggest union in Congress, we, we have a pay policy uh, endorsement from Congress uh, and we were talking about two and a half 
5.5% being the range in February of this year. We've had to review that and sit to a meeting next week at national level to discuss uh, a reviewed policy moving forward because that's simply not going to be good enough uh, to keep the wolf from the door for, for our members and our families. Mm, that ESRI forecast uh, suggested that on average households could be down by about €2,000 this year, uh, but that could very well be an underestimate. Could be and, and look, Michael. Look, we we see you know employers out there. You know there is situations where employers are really to depend on their color, and it's all about ability to pay. But where there is an ability to pay, we will push push aggressive uh, pay, pay pay negotiating strategies with those. Another issue that's important to this is, is staff retention. We have a number of significant employers, uh, even in the northeast, who are struggling to retain staff because they're leaving the jobs because they simply can't afford to. To, to pay their bills and make ends meet on low pay. So it's in the employer's interest as well that we get a fix on this. And like the government needs to act on this, Michael. The government have been doing very, very little with regard to trying to, you know, uh, alleviate the burdens on workers. You know, for example, we, we mentioned earlier this year uh, and we made statements about the, the what's known as the small benefit exemption. So at the moment, a worker can get a €500 Euro voucher tax-free. Uh, we want that risen to €1,000 tax-free where employers can give those vouchers to workers as part of pay uh, negotiations. Mm. Um, the government have an act. They'd often that. give it as a Christmas bonus, that sort of thing. Yeah, we, 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 we have a lot of that, mm. uh, ranging from 100 up to 500 years, Christmas bonuses, as they're known, or, or, or annual payments. But the government can do something on that. Um, the national minimum wage, they really have got to look at this. And it's not just about bumping up the minimum wage. The living wage is the living wage. We need to forget about minimum wages. Mm. People have to be able to earn a crust. And, uh, you know, as people have said to me before, why is it okay? for business to increase their prices but it's always an issue when workers try to increase their wages so you know at the end of the day this is this is a national and an international issue we don't have control whether we like it or not with regard to energy prices that is the reality uh, and if you look at the current inflation bubble transport is is uh, proportionally 42 percent responsible for that uh, housing and, uh, and energy 35 percent and then hotel restaurant bills and so on have gone up by six percent so a lot of that we don't control as a country because of import on gas and, and, and fuel and so on so i think it's incumbent on the government the trade unions and business to get around the table maybe through the, the labor employer economic forum it's called the leaf forum uh, which we participate on and to try and resolve these issues and and to take the burden and and, and drudgery away from workers at the moment who are really finding it hard now uh, put fuel in their car, grocery bills, you know, I was talking to one person at a conference recently and their grocery bill has gone up six euro a week. They simply don't have that money. If you're in the low paid food sector, for example, a lot of workers there are earning 11, 12 euro per hour. That's simply not good enough. 93% of them have no sick pay. Mm. Massive contagion in COVID in the meat industry. And I spoke to you on your program many times during the height of the pandemic, or the so-called height of the pandemic, uh, because as you know, it's back with a bang again. Uh, And those workers simply... You know, they just can't afford to live now on, on, on exorbitant rent, uh, poor wages with no, no pension, no sick pay. So Ireland needs no longer to be an outlier in, in the EU. And what I mean by that is we're one of the few countries in the EU who doesn't have occupational sick pay. Now, we spoke with the Oireachtas. The Oireachtas recommended that occupational sick pay be put in statutes and, and, and Leo Varadkar has made commitments and indeed there's a bill being discussed at the moment, but it's, 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 it's minuscule. It's, it's three days in 2022, five days in 2023, seven days in 24, mm. and 10 days in 2025. It, it, it's a stepping stone in the right direction, but it doesn't go far enough. So we, we, we can do things if we really want to, uh, but it's up to the government now to get a hold of this because Ireland is becoming rip-off Ireland again and people are really struggling out there. All right. Uh, extend uh, that logic to the crisis that this country is now facing as a result of the war because 
Uh, as you mentioned, uh, there's very low paid workers in meat factories. Most of them are migrant workers uh, and are, are vulnerable to being exploited. At least uh, there's many claims uh, to that uh, effect. Uh, there's no hope of them uh, buying a home of their own, very difficult for them to rent. And we hear of people living in big congregated settings and so on. Uh, housing has been a big issue so far at your conference for everybody because it is so difficult to afford rent or buy or to do both, as the case may be. Uh, at the moment, I think we've around 15,000 refugees here from the Ukraine. That's going to soar uh, where uh, the total figure ends up at, God knows, but it could be as high as 200,000. How does that feed into all of that? Uh, with so many migrants coming into the country, the uh, lack of jobs for 200,000 people, jobs that could be uh, used to, to exploit those people or to push wages down and the housing problem that goes with all of that. Yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's extremely uh, insightful what you've said. It, it does feed into it and it's like being an outlier in, in the EU with sick pay. We're also an outlier when it comes to collective bargaining, right? So we have hundreds of thousands of workers and companies where they refuse to recognise trade unions. Uh, we need legislation to bring about collective bargaining. So when those workers come in here, wherever, wherever they come from and wherever they come here, uh, that they have a voice to be represented uh, by trade unions in their workplace. Um, you know, we, we had many, many non-Irish national workers leave the country and head back to their homeland in, during the pandemic. Some of them have never come back. Uh, I know that you mentioned the meat industry in particular that's struggling to retain staff both in the red and white meat sector. Uh, but I think, you know, Ireland has to have its doors open for the Ukrainian people uh, coming in from what is a, a terrible conflict uh, and SIPTU will do everything in, it, in its power to help those workers uh, assimilate uh, into the community and, and obviously get uh, decent terms and conditions uh, within wherever they work. Because if you don't have a trade union, the evidence is quite clear. You won't have decent terms of conditions. That is the bottom line. And the key pin in all of that will be the government bringing about, maybe through an EU directive that's imminent on the minimum wage, the whole issue of collective bargaining, Michael. That is the key issue here because people joining the trade union need to have someone represent them and give them a voice, particularly when they're coming in from countries such as Ukraine where they do not know the, 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 the employment legislation, for example, and what the rights and entitlements are. So SIP2 will be to the forefront, and we've been public making pronouncements about this over the last two weeks. We will make sure that those workers and those people coming in from the likes of Ukraine know what their entitlements are uh, and give them the best possible start. But just a point on housing. Mm. Housing last year alone, 14% of an increase in housing throughout the country. I live in Mead myself. Uh, I, I know that Mead has exploded in the context of house pricing because of its proximity to Dublin. So we're now in a situation where young couples trying to start families and so on can no longer afford to buy a house. And, you know, it, it, it's quite clear, you know, three and a half times your salary is the mortgage you can get under the banking regulations. Uh, workers are not earning enough to be able to get anywhere near what's needed to buy a house in Mead or in Loud for that matter. Uh, and they're going to rent uh, and the rent is crippling. So they're caught in this vortex, as I call it, where you're paying massive rent, which means you can't save for a deposit on a house. Uh, and years go by and people realise a lot of their income has been taken by rent and they have nothing to show for it. And that is the terrible indictment in this country that we're in that place where workers, even workers with good jobs, well-paid jobs, Michael, cannot afford to buy their own home. And I think that is a, a plague on all our houses. OK, well, the SIP2 conference continues today in Sligo. You'll be addressed by President Michael D. Higgins. And thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. That's Greg Ennis, Manufacturing Division Organiser with SIP2. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
cost of petrol, uh, your electricity bills, uh, your grocery bills, everything is going up in price. The cost of a holiday has increased on average by 16% according to the Irish Travel Agents Association, the ITAA. Martin Skelly, Director of Navin Travel, a member of the ITAA is on the line. Good morning to you once again, Martin. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. 16%, that's a, a big increase, isn't it? on the cost of a holiday for people. What's uh, behind this? Yeah, it's a big increase. Now, it's not everything, Michael, but it is a big increase. I suppose what we're looking at is we're comparing prices when there was a proper market and a real market. That's 2019. And really, 2020 and 21 prices kind of don't come into the loop, really. You know, so what would normally be a trickle has transpired to be a little bit of a leap. And as well as that, you're looking at peak season prices. You know, when you get that figure, you're looking at peak season prices, which is not that unusual to see over a three-year period that kind of increase. Some of it is down to hoteliers and airlines. Prices naturally increase during peak season. So that's a bit of an impact. It's based on demand as well. You know, a lot of people haven't travelled for a few years, so... That's responsible for some of it. Demand always affects prices. I mean, as long as the aviation industry has existed, we've seen prices go up during peak times and then they come back down when demand is less. So that explains it, Mm. you, you know. But that aside... If you can dodge peak season, and I know some people can't, because when schools when schools are closed, very often the only time families can go on holidays. But if you can dodge the peak of peak season, prices are, you know, I'd say minimally increased, and in some cases hardly increased at all, really. You know, so that's mm. the explanation. All right. Well, sixteen percent sounds like a, a lot, uh, and a couple of examples: uh, the average price uh, for a holiday to Lanzarote, seven hundred and forty-six euro, increased. By by 11% to 831 euro. Uh, a week in the Algarve uh, has increased by 118 euro. So I take it that's for a seven-night stay. That in itself is uh, not the biggest increase in the world. But I take it you're also facing into a lot of other increases. I take it that uh, things are more expensive in Dublin Airport uh, and when you get to Lanzarote or the Algarve for that matter. Sure. Now, the feedback we've been getting wouldn't reflect huge increases on the ground when you get there. I, I think the increases are effective before you travel. And I know, well, now it's a few months ago since I've been abroad, but I certainly didn't notice any increase. And again, I was very pleasantly surprised at kind of the comparison for life in some of the Mediterranean countries for day-to-day living compared to Ireland. Uh, but uh, the feedback hasn't been of huge increases. Now, and I know you, you mentioned a few figures there, and they're quite accurate. But there are other figures too. Like, there is still a lot of value for money. You know, schools break up the end of May, early June, and I know the primary schools later on. But the good family prices, for example, like one of the really popular family holidays, we'd say people taking the car to France, going to really good quality uh, um, mobile home holidays. Mm. And they're available for under 1500 for a family of four or five people. You know, so there's a lot of value out there still as well. I, I think the key is if you can dodge peak season, there's great value. If you're stuck to peak season, you're going to pay a bit more. And peak season or off season, uh, is it putting people off at all or is there a lot of demand for holidays because people have been dying to get away and haven't been able to go away for the last couple of years? I'd say there's really two completely contradictory answers to that and they're both accurate. One is there is a huge pent-up demand and the other thing is consumer confidence. It's a little bit 
Yeah, like if, you know, to a certain extent, people want to travel. They're cautious. They've been impacted by what happened here. So I think people are considering a lot where they'll go and what they're going to do. Uh, side by side with that is the absolute pent-up demand. People just want to get away. They want to walk in the mm. sunshine. They want to travel as part of a group. Now, and I know I mentioned confidence, but what we've seen a lot of is um, people who would normally travel as part of a group or with friends, with parties, be it spiritual, cultural, religious or group travel, that's coming back very significantly. And we've seen people who wouldn't have dreamt of going in 2020 and the book now for 2020 for, you know, mm. midsummer 2022. More of a demand kind of to the, uh, not so much to the northeast and naturally the war in Ukraine is having an impact, but certainly to the south and, um, uh, you know, to the med countries we really see uh, still a steady demand. I've heard people uh, saying they want to go away uh, and they had every intention of uh, going away because they feel that once they get off uh, the plane, uh, they'll be in a warm climate, be able to spend time outdoors. They had been concerned about COVID but will feel safe uh, given their experience of uh, spending time in these places previously. But the likes of Dublin Airport is putting them off now because there's so many people there. Uh, Apart from the stress of having to wait a couple of hours to get through and not knowing whether you'll get your flight or, or not, uh, you're on top of so many people uh, and COVID is so virulent at the moment. Absolutely, and that's going to impact as well. Now, again, you know, the comments that we're getting back, it's less to do with the airport being crowded and more to do with the delays. Um, well, we didn't have anybody impacted last weekend, but, you know, we're, we've been listening, we've had a finger on the pulse all the time, so we've been telling people to check in a minimum of two hours in advance for European flights. Now, I know some airlines have said extend that a bit during peak times. So, you know, at, at weekends, early morning and weekends, you know, I'd say maybe go two and a half, and in some cases up to three hours. It makes the journey longer. But by doing that, you're, you're kind of buying peace of mind as well. Mm, taking away the stress. Uh, and uh, what about passports? Uh, that's been a problem for some people as well, Martin. It has. Again, uh, it was really last autumn that the passport problem peaked and there was a lot of frustration. I think people couldn't understand why the service seemed to be suspended for so long when there was still a demand, you know, as a result of Brexit, there was still a demand for passports, albeit not at the level, at normal levels. That frustration seems to have abated and the crisis seems to have gone a little bit because the passport renewal service, you know, the online passport renewal service has taken a lot of pressure off the manual processing and that's been working quite well. So it's not something we're hearing at the moment. I think passports for in most cases it's not an issue at the moment. Are you on tender hooks at, at uh, the moment this morning specifically uh, because we're hearing this morning of hundreds of thousands of new cases every week of COVID-19. COVID-19 has all but destroyed uh, the country. Your industry has somehow managed to hang on by the skin of its teeth. Are you concerned that we may be looking at more restrictions? Well, we're a resilient bunch to start with, and I think time the last few years has proven that, of course, we're concerned about it, and because it's confidence and it's public health, and they're vital for us. So, yeah, we're concerned about it. Uh, Has it had an impact? Hard to say, really. It's the last two weeks. It it, it takes a week effect, really. And so it's hard to say how much of an impact it's going to have. We haven't heard anybody who's travelling cancelling because of it, but we'll be able to judge more over the next few weeks whether it um, has a big
big impact. Mm. And just in terms of the increase in the cost, uh, which is how we started off uh, to conclude, I take it that uh, there's still uh, a lot of value uh, when you compare it to prices uh, to holiday at home, uh, because it can be very expensive uh, in uh, Ireland, uh, not just to stay places, but to go out for dinner or get a cup of coffee or whatever the case may be. Yeah, I don't like doing the direct comparisons between Ireland and abroad because, you know, the whole social structure and infrastructure is very different. And we do need incoming tourism to keep our outgoing tourism going very well. But for sure, the cost of living in a lot of the Mediterranean countries is a lot lower than here. So that's a great incentive to people. I'll give you an example, Michael. We went out in, in, that was last October, but we had a meal in a really nice restaurant in northern Spain, and it was slightly over €20 per person with uh, wine included for uh, three-course meal. It was really good value. And whilst it wasn't fine dining, it was really good food. So you get that kind of value and you expect it in a lot of the med resorts that you don't get in Ireland. So that's a big incentive for people to travel as well. I think everybody feels good. When you get a bit of value for money, you know, it feels good. So we'll take all the help we can get. That's driving people to our doors and we welcome it. All right. Well, everybody loves their holidays. I'm sure that's true to say. And uh, it's an industry that has really suffered over the last couple of years because of COVID. Hopefully things are on the up and will continue in that direction for you and uh, your other members, Martin. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. Martin Skelly is uh, the director of Navin Travel, a Navin Travel, a, a member of the Irish Travel Agents Association. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Sinn Féin is uh, calling on uh, the government and uh, the HSE to stop breaking the law, to stop cutting corners and to provide children with disabilities with uh, the services uh, they need under a private member's motion which is being brought forward by Pauline Tully TD who joins us now. Pauline Tully is uh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on disability and a TD for Kevin Monaghan. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme this morning. Uh, Explain to us uh, why you believe the government is breaking the law. Because um, there was a High Court ruling there recently, just um, in the middle of March, which basically, a case had been taken by the parents of two children under um, the Disability Act of 2005. A child is entitled to an assessment of need. There should be a full and comprehensive assessment of need to identify, you know, if they have a disability and the nature of that disability and then what services or interventions they require. Um, and what the HSE have been doing since, say, 2020, when they brought in a new standard operation procedure and they introduced this preliminary team assessment where the new Children's Disability Network team set up were actually carrying out a preliminary team assessment, but implying that this was meeting their obligations under the Disability Act of 2005 and that this was a full and comprehensive assessment of need, whereas it is not. Um, we had a motion in the Dáil a few weeks ago where we were actually calling for this to stop because um, what was happening was children were undergoing this preliminary team assessment, which was taking anything up to half an hour to, to maybe an hour and a half. Um, and um, when compared with a proper assessment of need, it normally takes um, about 90 hours. So this was, um, we were asking them to stop doing this because what was happening was children were undergoing this preliminary team assessment and then were just being put onto another waiting list to get a full and proper assessment of need. Um, and still then further waiting this again for interventions and services. So what we're asking them to do is stop using this preliminary team assessment which again, as I said, this, the yeah. High Court ruling has actually said that they were erring in law by doing this anyway. And the HSC has indicated they're not going to appeal this decision. So what we want to do then is for them to come up and 
uh, with a comprehensive plan of how they're going to address the needs of children, how they're going to carry out the proper assessments and how they're going to put in place services and okay. interventions that children need. Uh, 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 and expand on what you mean by assessments. What, what, what type of assessments are you talking about? So if a child has a disability or if it's referred maybe by the GP or even by parents concerned, maybe it's not meeting certain milestones, maybe the child is, isn't verbal, um, you know, it possibly is on the autism spectrum, but to find out exactly what uh, that child's needs are, they need a full and proper assessment. Mm. So the they should have an assessment by a team of people where you may have a psychologist, you may have a speech and language therapist, occupational therapist, physiotherapist. They'll all mm. work together to assess the child. And that takes place over a number of meetings. And they'll also talk to the parents and they'll, they'll find out, you know, how the child interacts in different situations. And then they will be able to do certain tests and they will find out then if that child sure. you know, has a disability yep. and what the nature of that disability is. And therefore... And what the nature the is. That's the important part, isn't it? Am I right? and thinking that this is just one step. It's a, a first step, a very important step, because without taking this step, uh, there can't be treatment. Uh, unless you diagnose the problem, you can't treat it. Yeah, absolutely, yes. You have to uh, you know, find out and assess the child and see what um, interventions. And they may not need that many interventions or services, mm. but the early intervention is key because we know if, chi- if a child receives um, early intervention, they will lead less intervention as they grow older and so we've seen situations where children are not verbal and because they do not get any intervention the services may never talk whereas if they get the the intervention at an early stage they may talk and same with children who who maybe through a physical disability cannot walk instead of just assuming that they will end up in a wheelchair if they're given an early intervention if they're given proper physiotherapy or occupational therapy they may actually walk right so you know these are very important Mm. um, services. And can the HSE provide those services? Has the HSE got the wherewithal as things stand to provide the services? Uh, Because uh, they've uh, been saying there's problems with software. Do they need to invest in a whole new computer system? Yeah, well you see under the Disability Act also the the government are supposed to uh, produce a report every year under Section 13 of that Act, which will outline what the unmet needs are within the services and then a plan to address those unmet needs. They haven't produced that report since 2015. So therefore, how can they address something when they don't know what the issue is? They're claiming themselves that their database is outdated. But I mean, instead of just saying, look, it's outdated, why aren't they doing something about it? They need to update it, get a new IT system. But they also need to be taking measures to address the shortfalls in each of the the disability teams that they set up. They set up 91 children's disability network teams under this new progressive disability model. uh, And they're just all supposedly set up since last year. But what I'm hearing on the ground is that they're only 50 to 60% staffed. So there are a number of issues why they're not fully staffed. So they need to actually tackle those issues as well. And one of those issues was that actually many of the clinicians and therapists were leaving the service because they were totally uncomfortable with the preliminary team assessment because they felt it was a dilution of the professional standards. And they made the HSE know this but yet the HSE proceeded with that. So they need to now roll back and that they're not going to use that system anymore, maybe entice some of those, you know, uh, professional people, um, senior professional people back in. But they need to do that to offering them, you know, the proper grades, you know, and and the possibility of progression within the career. Um, But they also need to look at recruitment in the HSE generally over the health and social care models. And they need to look at retention, because that's a huge problem. It's, um, it sounds as though um, 
whilst there may be great urgency uh, to get this work done, it's not going to happen very quickly. You mentioned the High Court uh, and how it ruled uh, that the government is in breach of the Disability Act. Talk to me about the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities uh, and uh, how you would weigh this up uh, with uh, that uh, convention. Yeah, well, I mean, under that convention, which we ratified in 2018, I mean, 10 years after it was first drawn up, but anyway, we need to now um, we need to now ratify the optional protocol, which was never done, which gives actually people with disabilities the power to to take the government to the UN if they're not meeting their needs. But besides that, I suppose the UN convention is a, a rights-based convention. So it's, we need to move away from the medical model of intervention to a so, more social model of intervention. So we need to see people... Um, have a, you know, disabled people living in our communities being allowed to work, being allowed the access to transport, to education and training. And, you know, if they don't get what I'm talking about, the services and interventions of early life, they're less likely to be able to live independent lives in the future. So it's all tied up and, inter- in, and, and, and um, mm-hmm. intertwined. So it's important that, you know, if, if we're, we're serious about having uh, ratified the convention, in, uh, the convention, we need to now implement it. And to do that, there are a lot of issues uh, required. We need to look at the Disability Act and ensure that it's in line with the UNCRPD because it was drawn up in 2005, so it may be somewhat outdated. Now, the government have muted that they are going to refuse the Act, but we want to ensure that they review it to strengthen it rather than dilute it in any way because they feel that they cannot meet their obligations under the Act. And they need to put in place whatever is needed to actually meet their obligations. All right. Well, uh, your motion goes uh, before uh, the doll this evening, I think, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yep. And, and you'll be calling on government uh, to report back before the summer on all of this. Uh, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the programme okay. this morning. Thank, thank you. you. That's uh, Sinn Féin's spokesperson on disability, uh, Pauline Tully, who's a TD for Cavan Monaghan. Now, thanks to John in Dundalk, who's been on the phone to us. John tells us he retired in February of this year. He's on a contributory pension, 37 and a half years, contributions paid in. But he found himself in a position where he wasn't entitled to his full contributory pension because he hadn't the full 40 years. My working life was divided between PAYE and self-employed where I employed six people. I then discovered if I'd gone for a non-contributory pension, I'd have €20 a week more than I'm getting. The calculation system they have is grossly unfair. Pensions at the minute are not adequate. I can't make the figures work for me. Can't make ends meet. I'm too old to work and too young to die. Okay, John. (laughs) I'm not not sure about the first part, but we'll accept the second part. (laughs) Well put, by the way. Uh, Patton Dundair says, As far as I'm concerned, most of the people who give out about pensions are the ones who are on big money. I also know lots of people who retired young out of uh, the Gardaí and other state organisations, and they're working in other jobs now, and they're getting their pensions at the same time. Thank you as well, Pat, for your call to the programme. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the National Referral Mechanism is a system that identifies human trafficking in this country. Seven groups have uh, come together and called on uh, the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, to review how the NRM works because of uh, the influx of refugees uh, to this country from Ukraine and uh, the thousands of vulnerable women and children who will be coming to this country as a result of that. That call is 
has been echoed by the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission. Let's uh, speak to Isabel Toulon, who's Senior Legal Officer with uh, the Migrants' Rights Centre in Ireland. A very good morning to you, Isabel, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, when we talk about trafficking, we're talking about very vulnerable people who are, are being exploited in many different terrible ways. Tell, tell us a little bit about the situation as it stands. Good morning, Michael. Um, so the Migrant Rights Centre, MRCI, um, handles cases of lab- trafficking for labour exploitation, which is what it sounds like <clears throat> when people are trafficked here and exploited in various forms of work, f- various sectors, agriculture, private home, um, industry, um, restaurants. And um, this is in addition to other forms of trafficking, um, trafficking for sexual exploitation, trafficking in children um, and trafficking for criminal exploitation being the main um, other other ones. OK, and it's fairly commonplace. Uh, there's many slaves living in this country, basically speaking. Yeah, we don't really use that ter- the term yep. slaves, slaves in Ireland, actually. That's more of a, a British term. But there are many people who have been exploited, many victims of human trafficking, um, and indeed survivors, people who have actually successfully left um, situations of human trafficking. So, yes, it does, it does happen here, unfortunately. Mm, it's an odd term to use, I'm sure, uh, and uh, one that people don't like, but it, it spells out the reality of the situation for many people uh, because uh, they're not at liberty as such. No, no, exactly. Um, people who are being controlled, um, they've been deceived in various forms, um, brought here um, through deception, through coercion, abduction, force, um, and they are being controlled and mm. they are effectively not able to leave the situation in, in a variety, the control comes in a variety of different ways. Yeah, and uh, we could be, I don't know, socialising with them, uh, living alongside them, uh, and uh, may not be obvious at all, uh, people working as nannies, people working, washing cars or, or, or different things like that. It's not uh, just people in prostitution or working in uh, cannabis grow houses and that sort of thing. No, um, with trafficking for labour exploitation, we focus on sectors that you mentioned, people working in the private home, people working in various forms of agriculture, in restaurants. As you say, people often living alongside us in society. But they are vulnerable uh, and uh, they can be uh, exploited, uh, which has all sorts of consequences. You're concerned uh, about uh, the Ukrainian refugees coming here. I I gather one part of uh, the problem is uh, that it'll be very difficult to oversee uh, what's happening as it happens because so many people will be coming so quickly in such a short space of time. Exactly, exactly. Uh, The arrival of huge numbers of very vulnerable people fleeing war, highly traumatised in such a short period is almost unprecedented, I think, in this country. And we're concerned that the existing mechanism, the national referral mechanism, isn't it's it's not a great mechanism. It doesn't work very well at the moment. Um, mm. It is being reformed. Everybody has acknowledged this. Um, but if it's if it's not reformed quickly and reformed well, um, we're concerned it's not going to be able to deal with the cases that are going to come out of this situation. Mm. And uh, under the referral mechanism, uh, somebody like me, a normal person, a uh, member of the public, would be able to report something that they're concerned about. Well, you can always report something that you're concerned about to Ngarda Um The problem w- with um, the mechanism at the moment is that the only 
um, body that can identify victims of trafficking is in Garda Síochána. And historically, victims have a hard time um, approaching the police for various reasons. They may be af- historically afraid of the police. The police may be corrupt in their own countries or may have, have had bad experiences. But also, their traffickers have used the police against them. They have told them, if you go to the police, they won't help you, they'll arrest you, they'll deport you. They are not your friend. Hmm. Well, how do you beat that? Well, we um, have a, a different uh, national referral mechanism, one that where the identification takes place, um, sorry, the identification is made by um, what we call a multi-agency panel. So it's a group of um, individuals that do not, uh, agencies that do not involve the guards. So for example, NGOs and civil society organisations, because we have the experience working with traumatised victims of trafficking, in addition to other um, agencies um, and entities appointed by the state. Mm. Okay, and what is it that you want uh, the minister to do? Uh, we would like the minister to um, prioritise reform of the reform of the national referral mechanism, particularly the victim identification system, in consultation with civil society organisations. Whereas we said we feel we have the expertise and the experience. Okay, so that we could report to you if, for example, I think that there's somebody down the road who's working. Uh, seven days a, a week uh, really don't get a, a day off uh, they don't get sick days, they don't get holidays uh, obviously um, uh, they're on call from the moment a baby cries in the house uh, to the moment a baby might wake up in the middle of uh, the night uh, and so on uh, and really has uh, no workplace rights or, or conditions uh, that we should be able to go to NGOs with that complaint is it? Well, so we should go to the, the best practice is a multi-agency body. So it's a body that comprises of many different sections of society, so that the best, you know, expertise and experience can go into identifying these cases, and that would include include NGOs. And yes, like the situations you described are, are common in domestic servitude in the private home where there is no regulation at all, um, and so that anybody can really. Uh, come forward or, or, or approach an organisation and be referred in and have their case considered. Um, exploitation, deception, coercion, all the things that make up a trafficking case. Okay, uh, and because Ukrainians are, are, are coming uh, to this country in very unusual circumstances, uh, I gather that will alleviate some of the concerns that you would have otherwise. They'll be given PPS numbers, the right to work, the right to welfare and so on. Uh, yes, of course, and those things um, are definitely, they definitely alleviate, like you said, but they don't entirely prevent situations of trafficking because uh, trafficking doesn't always happen from outside the country. It's not a movement from outside to inside. It can begin in the country, it can begin in a situation of employment that deteriorates. It's really when the control, when the person loses control, it doesn't really matter whether that's outside or inside the country. Okay. All right. Well, look, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning, Isabel. Uh, nice to talk to you, Isabel Tulin, Senior Legal Officer with MRCI. That's uh, the Migrants' Rights Centre in Ireland. Now, let's uh, stay with uh, the war and uh, some of uh, those problems uh, that people are facing fleeing war. Here's uh, the Secretary General of uh, the United Nations, Antonio Guterres. Since the beginning of the Russian invasion one month ago, The war has led to the senseless loss of thousands of lives, the displacement of 10 million people, mainly women and children, the systematic destruction of essential infrastructure, and skyrocketing food and energy prices worldwide. This must stop. The United Nations is doing everything in its power to support people whose lives have been overturned by the war. In the past months, beyond their support to refugee hosting countries, 
Our humanitarian agencies and their partners have reached nearly 900,000 people, mainly in eastern Ukraine, with food, shelter, blankets, medicine, bottled water, and hygiene supplies. There are now more than 1,000 United Nations personnel in the country, working via eight humanitarian hubs in Dnipro, Vinitsia, Lviv, Uzorod, Chernivitsi, Mukachevo, Luhansk, and Donetsk. The World Food Program and partners reached 800,000 people in the past months and are scaling up to reach 1.2 million people by mid-April. The World Health Organization and partners have reached more than a half a million people in the most vulnerable areas with emergency health, trauma, and surgery kits. Just today, a convoy of trucks brought food, medical, and other relief supplies from WFP, WHO, UNHCR, UNICEF to Kharkiv to be delivered by our national partners to thousands of people in hard-hit areas. Our agencies and partners are procuring vital supplies and setting up pipelines for deliveries throughout Ukraine in the coming weeks. Sounds like an almost impossible job, a huge job of work, if ever there was. Let me bring you some of uh, the comments coming into us about some of uh, the topics that we've been discussing today. Frank thinks it was a massive mistake to lift uh, the public health measures so quickly. Now it's going to be very hard to reverse that. People have got used to not wearing masks, but uh, Frank uh, thinks uh, that that should never have happened, at least not so soon. He says people just seem to forget about the virus and now we're paying the price for it. I know people are are not getting as sick because of the vaccines and that's welcome, but our hospitals are under enormous pressure and I feel sorry for people missing out on possible diagnosis, etc., because hospitals are overrun with COVID cases. Uh, I think the government made a mistake in getting rid of the measures as quickly as they did and now they need to do something about it. Thanks uh, Frank for your message to the programme today. Uh, Rain Delic uh, says uh, Pauline Tully of Sinn Féin was spot on about uh, delayed assessments. He says I'm going through it at the moment if your child is severe or profound assessment is done but if your child is borderline you're being put on the long finger. The problem with this is the kids who are borderline uh, and today the best chance of normal life but they're suffering. Uh, Pete texting us today saying, I have a figure for you, there's over one million low-paid workers in this country now living in poverty, food poverty, rent poverty, medical poverty, and they're just going to be left to die a horrible death by wealthy politicians and the spoiled public service workers. The trade unions have let the poor of Ireland down badly. Tell SIPTU, who have been the biggest culprits in all of this, uh, that all they are interested in is looking after public service jobs. Thanks, uh, Pete, uh, for that. Uh, I think uh, SIPTU has quite a, a number of uh, members who are working in uh, the private sector as well as the public uh, sector for that matter Pete, uh, but thank you indeed for sharing your thoughts with us Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now let's uh, speak uh, to Claire Daly, MEP. Uh, a very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, to talk uh, about uh, the war that we all want uh, to stop. Uh, wish had never started, but here we are. What do you believe is going on in the Ukraine? Uh, and uh, do you believe uh, that there is any obvious end in sight? Uh, I'd love to say I did, Michael, but um, unfortunately, it doesn't look like that to me. I mean, for example, yesterday I was at a security and defence meeting 
here in the European Parliament and it was meeting in camera, which means, you know, nobody's allowed uh, in at it. But all of the talk was about pumping in more weapons. It was about top-ups and reimbursements and what type of weapons could be bought, what type of weapons could be thrown in. And unfortunately, all experience tells us that the more weapons thrown into a conflict, the longer it will go on. And while there's talk about peace, there isn't actually. Everybody knows there's not a serious um, input behind the scenes to put everybody around the table to have a settlement. It seems that they're happy enough to have the situation continue at the rate in which it's going, which is a, a real tragedy for the people of Ukraine, first and foremost, because the longer this goes on, they're the ones who suffer most at the hands of it. But uh, I don't see an early end in sight, I'm sad to say, because I don't think mm. the international community is in a place where it's demanding a cessation of hostilities and, and seriously getting people around the table. I mean, they will get around the table eventually, but unfortunately not quick enough. Well, if there's a table left, I suppose. Uh, what do you believe led to this conflict? Uh, because uh, you've said that Ukraine is being used as a pawn by Europe and uh, that Ukrainian lives have been treated as, as expendable uh, and uh, that uh, Russia and the West have to both take responsibility in what led to this conflict? Yeah, I, I suppose that's a, a summation of it. I mean, look, at primary responsibility for the invasion, well, the total responsibility for the invasion obviously rests with Russia. Uh, it was an, an illegal act, which we absolutely condemn. It's not true to say that Russia didn't have other options. They most certainly did have options, and I don't think that the door to a diplomatic resolution was closed at that stage. In fairness, France and Germany were trying to broker some sort of uh, a settlement. So responsibility lies wholeheartedly, 100%, at the hands of Russia for the invasion. But that doesn't mean that we can ignore what led up to it. And there is a genuine security concern uh, by Russia as a result of, I suppose, the meddling in Ukraine's affairs, which has gone on for many years now. It's uh, opened. Madeleine Albright, the U.S. Uh, representative, has been quite open. Five billion euros the U.S. pumped in for a change of government in 2014. And unfortunately, Zelensky came to power on the basis of doing peace with Russia, of implementing the Minsk II agreement. Um, but unfortunately, he wasn't able to do that, partly because of um, representatives in his own country, ultra-right-wing elements who didn't want a resolution, partly because the U.S. was quite happy to see conflict on Russia's borders. But the idea that the Ukraine would develop missiles within shooting range of Russian cities and that that wouldn't provoke a reaction, it would be like, you know, if the U.S. had, lo if Russia located weaponry and missiles in Canada or Mexico, well, U.S. would have a problem with that, and they'd be totally right to have a problem with it. It would be completely unacceptable, and this was something similar. So, unfortunately, rather than those issues being sorted out diplomatically, the status of, of Ukraine being considered in that way, uh, there has been a war, of course, going on in the Donbass region for the past eight years. There were issues there, but instead of the international community, I suppose, intervening and forcing everybody around. They, they play their part in ratcheting it up. And NATO has been ratcheting it up in that area because they see the opportunity to deal a blow to Russia.
Okay. I just don't think that it's fair that the people of Ukraine are caught in the middle of this and they're the ones paying with their lives and with homelessness and with the devastation of their country. Mm. It's utterly heartbreaking. And death en masse, of course, yeah. yeah. Unbelievable, Mm. yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, Uh, Putin would describe Zelensky as uh, a fascist Nazi. Uh, Moscow would like uh, a change in the regime in Ukraine. Uh, Is that something you'd support? I don't actually believe that that's necessarily the case. And I certainly don't support regime change anywhere. It's for the people of Ukraine to decide their own government. And I have been very much clear all along. We supported the outlines of the Minsk II agreement, which respected the territorial claim uh, of Ukraine, but also recognised that there had to be some form of autonomy and representation for the people in the Donetsk and Luhansk areas, the Donbass region. Unfortunately, as I said, that agreement wasn't put in but mm. I don't think Zelensky is a neo-Nazi but I do think that well it's not that I think it is established beyond doubt that there are very serious neo-Nazi elements in Ukrainian society many of whom who have been incorporated into the Ukrainian army which is an incredibly dangerous situation now considering the amount of weapons that are being uh, pumped in I think they are a dangerous influence in Uh, that area. I think they've been seriously contributing to the instability and I don't think Zelensky had been able to deal with them in the way in which he, you know, he promised peace with Russia when he got elected. He wasn't able to deliver that. Prior to the... goes on, I think he's becoming more irresponsible though, to be honest with you. Irresponsible? Irresponsible, absolutely. I mean, in the last weeks, he has banned all political parties, except his own and the ultra-nationalist neo-Nazi forces. Now, that's absolutely scary. That would be like in Ireland now if there was a war on and Michal Martin decided to ban Sinn Féin and the Sock Dems and, and everybody except himself and the people he was working with. I don't think people would find that acceptable. I don't think the supporters of Sinn Féin or the opposition would find it acceptable. It's, it's a dangerous um, direction to go in, particularly when that was something that had been sought by the ultra-right-wing elements in society. The Ukrainian parliament had been meeting every day, though, had it not? It doesn't alter the fact that these parties are all banned now. There's no other parties there. I don't know whether they were meeting okay. or not. Yeah, okay. um, I've, I've no knowledge of w- that. But, but before, before the invasion, would, would you have considered Ukraine to be a, a sovereign democratic country? Absolutely. As I said, I fully support the Minsk Mm. Agreement, which recognises the territorial basis Mm. of Ukraine. What I do recognise it as well, which is interesting from a parliament point of view, because people might know it, but the European Union has been funding Ukraine massively. So billions of European money has gone into Ukraine over the past number of years. And actually, the European Court of Auditors, which is an excellent outfit, has assessed that money and done an accounting exercise on it. There was one last year. And they said they could not say that the money was accounted for properly, that huge sections of it went to corrupt elements in Ukrainian society, and that that it wasn't necessarily money well spent. And it's interesting that in, in December of last year, the biggest issue in Ukrainian society was corruption. It's massive economic problems. Two million people had already left the country before the war because of the economic crisis and the mismanagement of the economy. So, you know, while fully recognising the territorial rights of Ukraine, the idea that it's sort of put about that it's some sort of a utopian heaven of prosperity and democracy is just not an accurate reflection of what Ukraine was and is, you know. Would Ukraine have been better surrendering to the Russians? Well, you can't surrender unless you're in a war. 
Yeah. Uh, what I think well, the Russians have done is work uh, with their neighbours. Yeah, no, no, we're in mm. a war now, but you were talking about before the war sure, yeah, there yeah. And, and previously. So I think they would have been better off trying to work out a cordial relationship with their neighbours. And that was what Minsk too was. And that's what Zelensky got elected on. And it was about, about brokering peace with Russia. And Russia had accepted that as well. Mm. Ukraine's territory was enshrined. There was de-escalation along the border of the militarism on the border and certain recognition for uh, the Donbass. Now, both sides contributed to that not happening, but that was the bones of an agreement and the international community didn't kind of weigh in behind that. Instead, Ukraine, under influence of NATO, had engaged in massive, against the backdrop of a bad economic crisis, militarization. So they had done a major deal with the UK in terms of naval, naval uh, military hardware. They'd received absolutely millions worth of weapons from the US. They'd done a, a military deal with mm. the Turks for drone equipment, which they were using in Donbass. So this military escalation by Ukraine as well didn't help their good neighbourly relations with but, Russia. But in so fact, what? It helped. Well, it helped. So what? Yeah. I, I mean, so what? I mean, it's so what? Devastation of Ukraine now. Well, I think that was okay. an incredibly silly thing for them to do. Do you think now that if the Canadian government, because this is the comparison, mm. if the Canadian government did a deal with the Russians and put missiles on the border with the United States mm. and refused any engagement and attempts at engagement to say that they were neutral or that they would sit down and talk, who? continue to ratchet that up, that the US wouldn't have moved in and dealt with that situation. They did when it was in Cuba, and they were right to do it in Cuba. They said, hang off here, that's too near us, we have a security concern. That's what Russia were saying, and unfortunately, that wasn't heard. Do I think that that justified them invading? Absolutely well, that's, that's, that's the point and of I my question that. in saying, so what? Because, Absolutely I mean, it's a, a sovereign democratic com- country that decides to uh, act in whatever way it does in terms of its own defence and so on. And you and I might think that's a, a ridiculous way to behave uh, and uh, to uh, adopt such weaponry and all of that type of thing. But so what in terms of another country invading, uh, crossing your borders? They are two different issues, Michael, right? Now, you're totally right. As I said, let's be clear here. There's no disagreement here, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That did not justify the invasion by Russia. There were other alternatives mm. available. But what it does mean is that it was highly irresponsible of Ukraine to do that as well. As I said, do you think if the Canadian government were doing that, that the US wouldn't have had something to say about that? Well, if the US invaded... It's not good neighbourly. It's not good neighbourly relations. Why would any country try and provoke its nearest neighbour in terms of militarism, in terms of... Mm. Because, let's remember... No, and that's a fair enough point. The Russian minority minority in the Donbass region, 15,000 people had been killed there. There was a war going on in which the Ukrainian forces were militarily involved against Russian sympathetic separatist groups who happened to live in the Donbass area as well. So that conflict was going on, the mil- mm. of which Ukraine was an active participant. So there was a military conflict already between the two countries. And against that backdrop, for Ukraine to be going in and mm. engaging in an alliance with the US, 
I mean, if Canada did yeah. that, no, 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 you've answered a red line. You, you, not, you know, it's, you've, you've answered my question, fairness. When I asked you, so what? I, I think the question uh, that I, I implied was, does that justify an invasion? And you've said no, course. that it doesn't. No, in the same no, way that it wouldn't not. justify the US invading Canada if it was in a, a similar situation. And I suppose what I, we have to kind of, I suppose, if we don't see the roots of this and the complexities of it then we're not going to get a resolution to it. like Because the idea that the Ukrainians should fight on to the last Ukrainian, you know, against the Russian army, that's not going to happen. The only thing that's going to happen there is more Ukrainians are going to die, more are going to be expelled from their homeland. I I find it just utterly shocking. Like, I mean, I'm so disappointed in the European Union that I'm at a meeting yesterday when they're looking at the balance sheets of billions of weapons going in there they're not the ones who are in there dying like, you know. Mm. It's absolutely scandalous. There are balance sheets well, should they be? boosted by this, you know. Should they Nobody be in there? should be in there. The mm. European Union should be saying, we were a union that was supposedly brought about to bring peace mm. on the continent of Europe and all of us in Europe. For me, it's the saddest thing. What Schultz, the leader of Germany, six weeks ago, he made a statement and he was totally right. He said, we cannot have peace in Europe against Russia. We can only have peace in Europe with Russia. That doesn't mean that he's a Putin puppet or something like that. It's a recognition of a reality that we all live on the one continent and we have to put up with each other. We've got to broker international deals and respect each other. And it's not so long ago that actually Europe and Russia got on Mm. quite okay. There's been a a deliberate Russia phobia and increase in of hostilities over the past. But there's no way out of this, it would seem, for Russia uh, without surrender or part surrender. No way out for Russia, for Ukraine or Russia? No, for Russia to give up its war, to to pull out of the invasion, to stop what it's doing. Well, what Russia has said is is that they are prepared to talk and engage in a ceasefire. In fairness, their demands have been pretty consistent. They want to look at the neutrality of Ukraine. Now, they talk about demilitarisation, the idea that, you know, Ukraine would have no army. I don't think that's what they're talking Mm. about. And if it is, that wouldn't be acceptable. And Ukraine would need a referendum which... a referendum couldn't happen without Russia withdrawing. Why did they need? Why did they need a referendum? That that's a flight of hand a, by. Well, that's a constitutional by question, Zelensky. Is it not? I don't know. Yeah, but that. But he would no, no. That that's a sort of a, a bit of a sleight of hand there. I mean, if they got around the table and said, "Okay, let's halt all cessations. Let's look at." And Zelensky has, like, he's been contradicting himself a lot on that as well. But he has said neutrality is prepared to be looked at. NATO have said, on the one half, they said, listen, lads, you're never going to join NATO, but at the same time, we're going to keep the option there because it suits us to destabilise the region. And all the people who are suffering in this are primarily the Ukrainians, but also the Russians, and increasingly the Europeans, because the impact of this war is going to have a massive effect on Europe and on our living standards. And when the gas goes off, if it does, that's the next crisis. We're looking at probably millions of people in Europe losing their jobs as mm, well. Yeah. It's devastating. And the European Union should have been arguing, instead of pumping more militarism in for saying, call off all hostilities, let's sit and look at what's been talked about, which is basically really just Minsk again. Russian or Ukrainian neutrality, and um, some form of recognition for the, the Donbass region and so on and uh, a commitment that there wouldn't be basically weapons within reach of, of Russian cities. You know? OK, maybe the solution is leave the Ukrainians uh, to be slaughtered and use fracked gas. Well, that's what's, that's what's looking like uh, is being put on the table by the Europeans. Hmm. 
as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that, that is what they're, they're talking about because uh, they are the ones who are leaving the Ukrainians to be slaughtered. Because what they're saying is, lads, keep on fighting. Uh, we'll keep giving you the, the guns. So if you see two fellas fighting and one fella is bigger than the other, do you give the little fella a stick and say, go on there, keep going, keep at him, keep at him, as he's getting pummeled? Or do you pull the sides apart? I know which side I'm doing. And filthy U.S. fracked gas uh, being brought into Europe is not only going to not save any Ukrainians, it'll severely damage the planet. And you'd even question whether the planet would survive it, you know. So I don't believe in gas at all. I'm, I'm an environmentalist. So I would like to see us not being dependent on any fossil fuel. But at the moment, Europe is dependent on uh, Russian gas. It is more environmentally sustainable than uh, rotten LNG gas is. Uh, and you'd have to do the maths on this as well. Okay. Uh, join the dots between uh, the US and NATO interference and the United States' long-standing uh, desire to uh, break off North Stream 2 and get its gas back onto the market. I'd say that was a contributing factor to the war, actually. Okay, we'll leave it there. I have to, because we're over time. But thank you for your time and thank you indeed for joining us this morning. That's Irish MEP Claire Daly. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, the Irish Examiner is uh, reporting uh, today on calls from groups like uh, the Irish Nurses and Midwives Organisation, the Irish Patients Association and uh, the Irish Hospital Consultants Association for leadership on COVID because of uh, the rate of infection and how it's accelerating. Let's speak to Neve Griffin, who's the health correspondent for the Irish Examiner. Good morning once again to you, Neve, and thanks indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You're also uh, reporting on on the Minister for Health, Stephen Donnelly, and what he had to say to Fianna Fáil yesterday evening about how ten to 15,000 cases are being registered every day and what that means in reality. Uh, what did he say about that? Yes, so he's um, confirming, I suppose, what GPs have been saying anecdotally, that many people are maybe not registering their antigen tests that they're, you know, testing positive and they're following the, you know, the rules, but then they're just not doing that extra step. So he's thinking the numbers may be several times what we're really seeing. And so you could be talking two to three times what we're seeing. And yesterday we had uh, just over 13, almost 12,000, sorry, cases. So 36,000 cases maybe in reality. Um, which is quite uh, a little bit disturbing. <laughs> it certainly um, is, yeah. You add it up. Yeah, so well, that's what, 200,000 cases in a week? Yes, that's yeah. quite high. Yeah. That's quite high. So even if a small percentage of those end up in hospital, um, that's a lot of pressure on our um, nurses and doctors, which is why they're they're calling for some action. And I, I take it that there's a lot of cases as well. I don't know if they feed into that a uh, couple of hundred thousand uh, a week uh, that people don't know they have it. They're asymptomatic and they haven't tested mm-hmm. themselves. Yes, yes, because, you know, why Why would you? And that, that could be if you're at work, if you're at school, um, if you're working in a retail setting, maybe working a bus driver. If you're travelling on a bus, you could easily pick something up and not realise. Um, and because we're not wearing masks, then unfortunately you're spreading it without, you know, without meaning to or without knowing that you are. Mm. Um, so there's been a few calls for us 
to, to follow. Some other countries, Austria has asked people again to wear masks, having lifted it. Spain and Italy are asking people to wear masks in different settings. So I suppose the Irish nurses are looking at that and saying, well, why are we different? Why can't we wear, wear masks? I don't think anyone's calling for lockdown or anything like it. Mm. But just to go back to the mask situation we had in February. Yeah, I think a, a lot of people are deciding themselves to wear masks, though, are they? Yeah, I'm definitely noticing that. I'm I'm based in Dublin and you definitely see that in the supermarkets more often and on the trains. We use the dart here to go in and out of town and more people seem to be pulling it on reluctantly, um, but pulling them on just for those um, situations. And you do see some school children wearing them, not a lot, but some of them are obviously starting to to worry a little bit. Okay. And why is it that we're not going into lockdown? I mean, if we've got 200 thousand cases a a week why is it that we're not going into lockdown or at least telling people that they have to wear masks well the advice being given to the health minister at the moment by the chief medical officer is that further measures are not required at this time so we could only um, speculate that he's looking at the icu numbers which yesterday were 50 or today sorry are 54 So even though that's quite shocking in itself it's nothing like what we would have seen in january 2021 um, so I suppose they're looking at that. But what the staff are saying is that even if, you know, a lot of the people who are in hospital have COVID and they're not seriously ill, but they still need to be isolated, you still need to wear full PPE while you're looking after them. So the, the pressure is still there. Mm. Um, and there is a, a, a certain logic to that, isn't there? I mean, if you've got 200,000 cases in a week, 54 people in ICU is not a a lot. If you cut that in half and say that half of the people are there for some other reasons and happen to have COVID, that's 26. And then if you Well, I think the people who are in ICU, they would be people with COVID who are quite sick with COVID. Okay. Um, It's not that they're in there with heart attacks and happen to have COVID? Um, no, not that we're being told anyway. Okay. Uh, but half of them um, not vaccinated anyway or, yes, or thereabouts. It seems to be a serious issue that um, the HSE's Colin Henry was saying this morning there's 1,600 people with COVID in our hospitals. So about half of those were admitted, like you say, for heart attacks or other mm. issues. So that leaves about 800 admitted for COVID. And he said half of that 800 are not boosted and some not even not even vaccinated at all. Nice. So, uh, I mean, 800, that's, you know, a fair-sized hospital, really, of people with COVID. So that's where the pressure is coming from. It really is incredible because most people are vaccinated. Uh, so uh, obviously you're at great risk if you're not vaccinated of catching COVID and quite possibly getting mm-hmm. sick if there's so many people in hospital. Uh, and I, I think it's expected that 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 number is going to increase further over the next few days. Yes, yes. That there's always that sort of time lag. We've learned like ten to twelve days between cases rising and hospitalisation. So um, doctors would say what we're seeing now is um, the impact of St Patrick's Day, which was twelve days ago, thirteen days ago. So that's where the high cases are coming from from that weekend. And then in another week, week and a half, we could we could see 
um, hospital cases rising, but nobody's really sure yet. Okay, and the the pressure that puts on hospitals, uh, uh, as you've explained to us before, is because if people have COVID, they have to be isolated from people who don't have COVID so that they don't catch it as well. Uh, So then you end up with uh, a lot of space being taken up by few patients, relatively few patients for the space uh, and how it would ordinarily be used. Uh, And that means the hospital stops functioning the way it normally would and then other things start getting cancelled. Uh, yes, the cancellations, that's really the big issue, isn't it? So people yeah. out there listening who are waiting for maybe a hip operation or, you know, less serious, um, well, they say less serious, but I, I don't know if I was waiting for a hip, I'd, I'd think it was mm. fairly serious. So they're all being cancelled. Quite a number of hospitals in the last few days have cancelled for this week and possibly running into next week. And the HSE has said they will support them, that they they think this is, you know, this is the right thing to do. Um, I'm just looking there, our Lady of Lourdes Straw had had 10 people on trolleys this morning. Mm. But that's an indication of serious pressure and overcrowding in the hospital. Well, of course, yeah, and, uh, I mean, it, it was a, a dreadful hospital for people on trolleys, uh, but it seemed to get on top of that and uh, people mm. on trolleys uh, becoming uh, commonplace again in the Lourdes. Uh, there's another problem for the health service, again because of COVID, because staff are getting COVID and there's a lot of absenteeism. Yes, that's right. Um, Colin Henley said this morning that's risen now to about 6,000 healthcare workers across um, HSC hospitals and also community care. Um, and I'm not sure if he was counting nursing home staff in that or not, but last week they were saying about 900 nursing home staff were sick. So that's going to impact on services in the community. It'll impact on nursing homes' ability to accept visitors because maybe they won't have the staff to, to manage it. Um, it'll impact on home care. We know already there's thousands of people waiting for home care. So that, you know, if there's shortages there and that again will cause more cancellations. Mm. So it's um, it's really not a good time to be sick, yeah. unfortunately. It would drive you mad altogether, wouldn't it? I mean, really, we, we've had enough of it and we thought we were done with it and here we are all over again. And uh, I suppose uh, there is a, a simple message for all of us uh, to think about uh, that we can stop ourselves or we can do a lot to stop ourselves from getting COVID and from spreading it. Yes, I think so. Like the masks, I know it's we thought we were done with them, but the messaging really seems to be from the medics anyway, just pull on a mask when you're going on, you know, going on the train, going on the bus, going into the shop. No one has really mentioned schools yet. I think they're leaving that up to parents to, you know, to have that discussion and think about what they'd like to do. But there's definitely a call for we can see the cases rose when we stopped wearing masks, so I guess they worked. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's the that's the call to please consider it again from the from the HSE. Yeah. What goes up must come down. All well, right. We hope so. Let's yep. hope for some more sunny days. Let's hope so, indeed. Yeah, because uh, we're outdoors, at least, will be better protected uh, because uh, yes. of the way it works. But thank you, Neve, for joining us as always. Neve Griffin. No problem. Thanks very much. Thank you. Neve is uh, the health correspondent with the Irish Examiner. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, thanks uh, to Grania in Drogheda who says none of us want to, to go back to having uh, public health measures but she says I'm afraid we have to if the numbers keep rising the way they are 
and uh, the way they have been over the last few weeks. We ha- we'll have to do something, she says, to alleviate pressure on uh, the hospitals and I'm surprised that the Minister hasn't made this a priority. A very interesting call, actually, that comes a text that comes to us uh, from Mary, who says uh, she rang her GP to report that she had COVID and they couldn't do the registration and she was told to go online. I don't have a computerised phone, so I can't do it. How many more like me, elderly people who can't register their test? Thanks uh, for highlighting that for us, Mary. Uh, And indeed, thanks to everybody who has been in touch with us today for that matter. Time now, as is usual around this time on a Tuesday, for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a number of incidents Garda are investigating locally, and perhaps you can assist with those investigations. We go to Trim Garda Station and Sergeant Patrick Smith, who has uh, the report for us uh, this week. Quite a a number of burglaries uh, to report on, for that matter, this week. And we're going to start with a burglary that uh, occurred in Kells on Saturday, just gone. Morning, Michael. Yes, Kells Gardaí investigating a burglary which occurred in the Rochford Hall area of Kells on Saturday evening last March the 26th. This occurred between 8pm and 9pm. Now entry was gained by forcing the front door and we have a witness who described the suspect as a male wearing skinny jeans with a dark hoodie. Um, similar then, Kells Gardaí are also investigating another burglary on the same date, this time between 7pm and 11.30pm across Carrick Kells. Now, again, entry was gained by forcing the front door, and we have a witness there that observed a black Audi A6 acting suspiciously in the area at the time with three males in the vehicle. So just in relation to them two burglaries, Michael, we're just asking if anyone had been in the area of these burglaries during these times and noticed any person in the vehicle acting suspiciously, I would ask them to contact my colleagues at Kells Garda Station on 046 928 0820 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1800 666 It's been a busy time for Gardaí locally in Kells. Another burglary to report on that also resulted in the theft of some vehicles. Yes, my colleagues again in Kells are investigating a burglary which occurred in the Drum Lane area of Manalty. Um, now, this occurred sometime between March the 12th and March the 26th. Uh, two tractors were also taken during the course of this burglary. Uh, the first tractor was a red coloured Zeter 6411 and the second one was an orange coloured Kabuta tractor. So again, we're just looking for more, anyone has more information in relation to these burglaries, uh, this particular burglary there. Could you contact again with Kells Gardaí on 046 Okay, we're going back uh, to the 22nd of March, which was a week ago today for the next burglary to report on, which happened in Dunshockland. Yes, my colleagues in Dunboyne are investigating a burglary which occurred at the Derrickstown area of Dunshopland on March the 22nd. And this occurred between 6.50pm and 7.30pm. Uh, the rear patio door was smashed. And also similar on this date and in around these times as well, with another burglary where a male was observed on the grounds of a house at Bridestream in Kukok. Um And again, the rear patio door was forced and he fled the scene when he was met by the homeowner. So just in relation to these two burglaries, we're just asking if anyone was in the area or noticed that especially to contact my colleagues at Ashburn Garden Station on 01-801-0600. Our next report uh, is somewhat different, uh, I think, in that you're not uh, reporting a burglary, uh, but two men, uh, quite possibly uh, with... Uh, no good intentions uh, who trespassed onto a premises in Rathrone Enfield. Yeah, that's correct. Um, my colleagues here in Trim are investigating what we call a trespass incident at a private home 
in Rathone in Enfield. Um, this occurred at 7.30pm on the 25th of March. Um, the homeowner actually disturbed these two males whom were wearing bandit clothes at the rear of the property. Uh, the suspects then fled the scene and they got into a silver sports coupe vehicle, which was driven by another suspect. And I'd just like to highlight that a similar vehicle uh, was cited acting suspiciously in Maharney County Westmead and Virginia County Cavan the previous day. So we're just looking again for anyone's information or if anyone noticed this particular type of vehicle acting suspiciously, could you please contact my colleagues here at Trimgar Station on 046 948 1540. Okay, we go to Drogheda next last Saturday night, Sunday morning, early Sunday morning, really, and uh, a burglar uh, who was uh, very uh, intent on getting into a local business premise. Yes, Michael, uh, my colleagues at Drogheda are investigating the burglary at a business premises at Trinity Street in Drogheda. Now, this occurred between 4.30am to 5am on the 27th of March. Uh, the front window pane of the premises was smashed by a male suspect who entered the property and removed a number of products. Uh, the only description we have of the suspect is he was wearing a face mask and gloves. So again, we're looking for anyone that was in that time, you know, it was quite early in the morning, and noticed any, anything suspicious, could they please contact my colleagues and draw the guard station on 041 And we conclude uh, with a burglary in Dunboyne on Saturday evening gone by. Yes, Ashburn Gardaí are investigating a burglary which occurred at the Drive Luttrell Hall area of Dunboyne on Saturday the 26th uh, between 5.15pm and 7.30pm. The homeowner was alerted by the alarm activation and returned home. They found the back door had been forced and a number of items taken. Uh, we don't have any description of any suspects or vehicles, so we're looking for anyone who may have been in the area at the time or not, especially to again contact my colleagues at Ashburn Gardaí Station on 01. 8010600. Okay, well, a lot of burglaries this week, Sergeant, and uh, I suppose uh, there's a, a word of warning in all of that for all of us uh, and uh, to think about home security, if nothing else. But thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, with uh, the report this week. That's uh, Sergeant Patrick Smith of Trim Garda Station, and we'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. Now, before we leave you today, our thanks uh, to uh, the texter, Margaret it is, who says, how do you talk to someone like Vladimir Putin, who doesn't want to listen? He's a warmongering bully who laments the breakup of the USSR and wants it back. Maybe Claire Daly could have a word with Putin and with Poot the Brute. As listening to her talking, she seems to think he's a reasonable man. I don't think the word reasonable is in Putin's vocabulary, says Margaret. Thank you indeed uh, for your text and sharing your thoughts with us uh, this morning for that matter, Margaret. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. 
code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.